0: And everywhere there's a red dot, and I think you can see the red dots. Um, We have gone in to a public sector hospital and rebuilt it. Um, And not just for one disease or two or three or four, but for whatever ails people. And so, and this is one of the hospitals that we built a couple years ago. We've tried to make them havens for people who are ill and their families, uh, the kind of place that you might go. Because what these places look like, and I'll show you some images from Rwanda, uh, but you've seen them elsewhere. I was talking with Nadine Gordimer about healthcare infrastructure in this country, which is uh, you know, relatively affluent compared to the rest of the continent. It's the same problem. The public infrastructure gets neglected, and, uh, and then part of the, the, what becomes innovative and entrepreneurial is actually to find a way to rebuild that public infrastructure. That's been what we've been doing for the last 15 years. That al- also allows you to get at the root of the problem. Not always as directly as one might w- wish, but so the problem as, as Steve said um, is it's really about how poverty and disease are linked together. And breaking that cycle of poverty dese- and disease is critical if we're to advance development uh, here or elsewhere in the world. Is you, you really need to free people from some of the burdens that they face if they are still having vaccine preventable illness, if they don't have access to clean water, et cetera. And I just put these images here not to talk about them, don't worry, but to think that this is one way, medicine for me and for many of us has been one way of looking at access to primary and secondary education, access to clean water, as I said, um, and on and on it goes. um, Prevention, better housing, adult literacy, and agriculture. And maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that in the Q&A. And just to open up the discussion, uh, we were asked some years ago, actually in 2004, I was asked by President Clinton and others to, to go specifically to Rwanda, and, uh, and did. Um, and um, bec- There are there many reasons to think about Rwanda. We later went to Malawi, Lesotho, and, and with colleagues to Burundi as well. But we found the same story. We went to a hospital that had been abandoned, a public sector hospital. that really had not been functioning since the genocide in 1994. That's what it looked like when we got there. Just a few months later, of course, by then, we knew what to do. We knew that you had to rebuild public infrastructure to train local people to do this work and to provide services for those who needed them right now. So to say, you know, as, as is commonly said, at least in Haiti, closed for restructuring, that was not our approach. It was to do all these things at once. Again, it's, it's not rocket science, and that's what we tried to do first in Rwanda and then in these other countries that I mentioned. Now, in, it's not a very... It does not, doesn't sound entrepreneurial, right? It doesn't sound innovative to say, well, it's about rebuilding public infrastructure, training local people. And when I put research here, it's very important. You need to understand what it is you're doing and the impact that it's having. And that was our formula. And here are images from Rwanda and actually Lesotho. Um, but the, we had a sort of cadre of people that we didn't have 20 years ago. And here you see a doctor up in the mountains of Lesotho, but he's not, he's a, a Haitian doctor. And you see a nurse doing a training in Rwanda, but she's a Haitian nurse. So we also had our colleagues uh, who have been uh, trained in this model in Haiti who are now in Africa. In fact, I just got a, an email this morning from a colleague of mine from Peru who's in Zambia. So one of the things that we're also hoping is, you know, I, I was in Chicago actually The City of Broad Shoulders. A friend of yours, Maggie, said this. I said it at dinner last night, but I copped it from Marjorie Benton. I was describing our work and how it had spread across Haiti and then parts of Africa. And we had people from Haiti helping in Africa, and people in Peru helping in Africa. And she said, it's like a giant Ponzi scheme for good. (laughs) So that will be, that's our new way of describing this, a giant Ponzi scheme for good. And that's what we've been trying to do here as well. And of course, we saw the same outcomes, the same uh, impacts of the work. I remember hearing my Haitian colleagues almost hectoring their Rwandan colleagues saying, look, you know, buck up. This is hard work, but you will see the same kind of transformations in your patients as well. And putting in place the model And here, again, an image of the model, which is a community health worker helping her neighbor. And we saw the same sorts of uh, uh, impacts. That is, you see people coming in looking skeletal. And then a few months later, I, I, I've said this before. I said this at NYU, so you'll forgive me, that this guy goes from looking like Skeletor to looking like he needs Lipitor, <laughs> a medical joke. Um, but we see this in all the places that we've worked. You know, and that, in, in turn, I think, drives forward uh, a great deal of enthusiasm among local people. to They start believing in public health again and, and, and medicine, which they've never really seen before. And so this is, uh, this is my argument here tonight, and I'm obviously greatly honored to be part of this academy. And uh, it's certainly an honor also to, to be inducted here in Cape Town. But that's my thesis, um, that we are so bad at providing good services. Here I've talked about medical services because I'm a physician, but think about education as well. We're so bad at providing high-quality services to people living in poverty that it is now nothing short of entrepreneurial and innovative to do so. Thank you very much, and I look forward to a discussion. I think everyone agrees that what you've said is true, not only the fact that poverty leads to bad health, and solving one may solve the other. But how do governments and people, our governments, eventually, get energized (laughs) to see this as a problem not just a moral problem, but a problem that makes good economic sense, a problem that would solve so many other things about our lives, I talked about the fiscal side of it, if we could do what you're doing individually. What kind of motive can be given governments and peoples to move i think that's a that's a great question and 10 years ago i would have stumbled in answering it in part probably because inside medicine uh, the way it's practiced say in boston you, we're not really called to learn how to answer that question and then so there first for me came a period of not ignorance but really not being able to answer that and then a paradigm that I regard as altogether legitimate and should be in this country, in South Africa, which is the rights-based paradigm, that you know healthcare must be right. But I have not found that compelling in discussions with governments at all. And so what, what we've learned to do, and I hope we're getting better at it, is to say, you know, if you're going to speak to a minister of finance, say, or a, a person in political power, you know assuming and you can't always assume this that, that that person cares about the future of his or her country that it matters and the the thing that they'll be focused on in my experience is development economic development and so one of the things we've said to people in political power is if you strengthen the public sector in healthcare and education you can break this cycle of poverty disease poverty and disease and promote development so i guess what i'm saying is sometimes it works all right to talk about a rights-based approach. It's what I do in my own personal practice and try to share that with students. But other times it's better to adopt, um, to adopt this economic kind of analysis. It's just better, I mean, if you're trying to win an argument, it's one thing. But if you're trying to move people, as you're saying, to invest in healthcare and education, that, those are the arguments that we've tried to, to master. And I'll just say one thing is, it's one thing to get the argumentation down. But what we're trying right now to do is to do some basic research to show what investing, you know, you take a figure like um, $35 per capita or $40 per capita. That's kind of what we're trying to push forward as an aspiration, if you can believe that, because in much of the world, it's significantly less than that. In the United States, by the way, it's probably in Massachusetts, six dollars to $8,000 per person. So to push for $45, $50 per person is an aspiration. But we're trying to show what the return on investment would be. And I may have been embarrassed by that kind of language 10 years ago. I'm not anymore, because I'm not interested in winning an argument. I'm interested in seeing governments invest. And I think there are governments that are not going to invest in healthcare and education. But a lot of them, if we engage the leadership in these kind of discussions, I think they will. So in other words, we have to get better at it. It's a, yeah, It's a political problem, it's a systems problem. And investments are required to get the return that they want. And I believe that a lot of people I've met in African countries, uh, the leadership, they want to see people lifted out of poverty. They may not know how to do it, they may have other motives. But it's wrong to just dismiss the public sector as corrupt. um, Because that's not been my experience. And we we can move this forward, move the needle forward. I think if we spend some time um, making the argument clear.
1: Hi, thank you for speaking. It was very informative. Um, I just recently read an article, I think it was uh, maybe in Harper's or The New Yorker, saying that in the area of malnutrition, it's actually not food shortage which is the problem. Like, we could feed the world twice over with the amount of food that's actually um, generated. Um, So how should we conceptualize the barrier that exists between food production and then the transfer of those resources to individuals? And if it really is a matter of lack of monetary funds, so individuals not being able to actually purchase the food, should we, in parallel to the work that you're doing, train individuals as entrepreneurs and as businessmen and women?
0: Well, I mean, the short answer for that would be, yes, we should. But for a clinician, and I don't know what, what's your field?
1: (coughs) I'm not in anything related to this. I'm in cognitive science.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a field.
1: <laughs> it's true. Um, We're both in And it field. doesn't
0: matter what your field is. You know <laughs> what I mean? Anybody can be involved in this. I'm an infectious disease doctor, and I've been forced to learn about this. And there's sort of four steps that we'd, we'd want to talk about in our line of work. One is to say, look, a malnourished child comes in. And you know, I, I was joking. I've got to stop joking about this. I said that I'm hoping to win a Nobel Prize in science for my great discovery, which is the treatment for malnutrition is food. They haven't been calling me. I've had no midnight calls from. (laughs) So the first thing you need to do is acknowledge that there's no other treatment for malnutrition. You know, when you have a child or an adult for that matter who's already wasted, like the people whose pictures I showed here, you, you need, you know, you need food. And there's there's it doesn't, we can go into the jargon, but it's not important. The short answer is that's step one. So, what would step two be? You know, in the two places that I described for you, um, in h- rural Haiti and rural Rwanda, it's a great deal of food insecurity um, for poor families. Uh, you know, on the macro scale, I don't. I, you know, Haiti, yes. I'm not so sure about Rwanda. But for poor families, you know, it's a, as they say in medicine, a diagnostic test. The child comes in malnourished. There's food insecurity. So, what can you do for those families? And, you know, a lot of, I use the word hectoring, which probably shouldn't be used more than once in a week, but a lot of interventions strike me as quite silly. They really are about hectoring poor people about how to better marshal their resources and use them. I I don't really believe that that's, that it's not stupidity that causes malnutrition in a family. It's not some woman doesn't know how to balance, you know, the spinach with the starches. So the second thing is, what are tools that we can provide to families living in poverty so that they can make sure their kids have you know, enough to eat? You know, and that might be fertilizer, or access to better seed quality, or agricultural implement, implements, or land. That's sort of step two. Step three, in a lot of places where I've worked, is really what's about the ecological problems facing people living in poverty. You know, what do we do? You saw that picture of deforestation. So do we just give up and say, gosh, that's too big, too complex? That's not good either. You know? And so thinking about interventions, terracing or gully plugs, there's a long list of them. It's important. But four is really fair trade. You know that the, the odds are stacked against poor people. Um, and so without fair trade laws, it's very difficult to have food security in, in, in some of the places where I've worked. And I'll just give one example. Is, in 1986, 87 or so, I was living and working in Haiti, going between Harvard and Haiti. And I saw um, rice. Haiti was once the world's largest exporter of sugar. Haiti became a net importer of sugar and a net importer of rice. All, And they called it Miami rice, by the way. Because we were, the United States was subsidizing agriculture, but Haiti was told they could not. And you can do your own inquiry as to who told them, the international financial institutions. And so food security was undermined in a very short amount of time. And you know, poor people can't fight those odds uh, without you know, uh, some of us in this room, for example, thinking about fair trade. Um, and that's a tough, you know, to have doctors and nurses and social workers have to think about that, it's obviously not enough. We need opinion makers, and again, back to the question of politicians. We need them to care about that too.
2: Hi, Dr. Farmer, my name is Maura Sullivan, I'm uh, originally from Chicago. Um, and I wanted to ask you recently a, a topic of conversation at the Harvard Business School Social Entrepreneurship Conference, which was actually chaired by fellow student delegate Esther Shu, uh, talked about social entrepreneurship. This concept that uh, global business leaders could partner with local so- social entrepreneurs in, let's say, rural parts of Africa, to use the power of the capital markets to bring about good. Yeah. I'm curious if you are talking to let's say, a CEO of a corporation, a global corporation that is operating in, let's take Rwanda for example, what would you ask of him or her? How can they provide the, the, the greatest value add, so to speak, um, for a company like you know, PepsiCo or FedEx? Yeah. Is, it, is it capital? Is it distribution systems? Is it literally clean water? Is it building plants there to create jobs? Um, how can they sort of leverage the power of the capital markets to best uh, accomplish the mission that you're trying to achieve?
0: Well, um, the, you know, you asked a somewhat rhetorical question, am I talking to CEOs and, and business people? And the answer is absolutely. Because I think all of us who work in this, in this arena know that we need jobs. Poor people need and want jobs. And they don't want people like me to, you know, if they're sick, of course, if, you know, you need a, a doctor. You know, if you have a surgical problem, you need a surgeon. But in terms... In my experience, people aren't looking for handouts. What they that, what they want is jobs and dignity, of course. So it would be a shame for someone in my position to not understand that and say, "No, we have to focus everything on healthcare and education, uh, healthcare and education, so that people can be healthy and you know take care of their own families." So you have to talk to people who can create jobs outside of healthcare and education, and that's what we've been doing. Of course, we've also been saying, "Well, but we want fair labor practices, and we want minimum wages, and we want." Maybe a, a net, you know, some basic social goods like daycare, and in my experience, uh, in in Rwanda and in Haiti, it is it is possible to bring people in to say create jobs. Now, to do that, they, there needs to be investment. I mean, you, you have to go economy by economy. Haiti, Haiti, uh, Haiti probably needs a good light manufacturing uh, industry. Rwanda needs better coffee. You know, needs co- they have good coffee washing stations. But it may vary from place to place. But what strikes me that doesn't vary is people need and want jobs. And for that to happen, we need investment. And it's a very simple formula, I think. I mean, it obviously is not a simple formula or it would have been done. But, you know, the business community requires, you know, we were t- was talking to Ben earlier about transparency. But they want fair, they, they don't want corruption. And they want fair business practices, and that seems to me a personally, perfectly reasonable demand. But one of the problems is sometimes we conflate poverty with corruption, and that's another analytic error. You know, because if you know, if, if to be transparent, you need things like electricity and computers and accountants, and that's the kind of thing we're lacking in a lot of these places in rural Africa. There's no electricity; it's off the grid. And so we also need a fair chance, a fair shot, at bringing in investors by saying, we need infrastructure, like electricity. We need You have to help us do that. And that's what we're trying to do um, in, in many of the places we work, And say, look, we're going to try and get people healthy so that they can work because that's what they want. Give us a hand. Help us invest reasonably and fairly. Thank you, Maura. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.